So um, if you got, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one. Turn, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to skip a couple chapters, and we're going to do one last touchy issue. Not like I can't make most issues touchy somehow, but, um, but chapter 11 hung between two different series we wanted to do on spiritual gifts 12 to 14 and freedom and, um, and, uh, and love in chapters 8 to 10. And so this passage, which is um, one of the most, I, w- I don't want to say offensive, but it's one of the most offending chapters in the Bible. I don't think it should be offensive if we understand it properly, which will take a while, but it, it, it's one of the people that take, people take the most offense at this passage. And so I thought, you know, since we talked about sexual immorality and divorce and singleness and remarriage and homosexuality, why not just throw gender in there, you know, and just go for it. And so this will be the last we can touch the issues. The other thing I should say about this is I believe that the issues we've covered over the last six weeks or so um, required a little bit more extended explanation. Um, that's my excuse for preaching 50 to 60 minutes for the last six weeks. When we start this next series, I'm going to try to pull it back and, and manage it a little bit in smaller chunks. Um, but I think that these, these issues we've covered the last six weeks, in order to really put bookends on them and try to handle them as much, as completely as you can within a limited amount of time, they just required more. And so I sort of apologize. I sort of don't. But you can tell your friends they can start coming back to church next week. Um, so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. In a few weeks from now, Lloyd is going to preach the one on communion while I go on vacation with my family and preach somewhere else. Chapter 11, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of, every, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Are you having fun yet? Just hang in there. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. How do you like that one? One of the things I noticed when I started doing some research to preach on this was that if you go to most preachers who, like, publish books of sermons, um, and you go to the First Corinthians, they just skip this passage. They just totally skip it, which I think should be, like, against the rules. Um, but 
here's what I think. I actually am eager to preach. I like preaching passages like this because I feel like controversy draws people's attention to something, and we concentrate. I really like that. It's harder. It's better that way. But I, I, here's why I like this passage. I think it's a great passage. David Jackman, one commentator, said this about it, and I agree with this. Some passages in the Bible are hard to understand, and so they engage the mind at full stretch as we try to work out their meaning. And other passages are really hard to accept and so they engage our will at full strength as we try to respond to them in obedience. But this passage is both. One thing I like about this passage is it offends us. Even when we understand it right, it'll still offend us on a certain level. And that's a struggle of the will, and that's good for us. And it's hard to understand. There's a lot of stuff that you're really kind of like... And it's going to be—it's hard. You've got to apply your mind and try to understand. I think that's good for us. I think the other reason I like this passage is that one of the things that— what this, one of the things this passage is really about is one of the oldest and most central cultural conflicts in humanity. And that is what we can nicely call the war of the genders. Um, you pretend, to pretend all you want about there not being a war between the genders, but it's, it's just because it's such a passive-aggressive war. But hardly anything marks humanity so much as the irony of men and women being so created for each other and yet having such a standoff against each other, and most, not least, often in marriage. Um, and one of the things that we, meaning people, the church, and the culture, spend an enormous amount of time doing is speculating on what the real differences between men and women are. What are the real differences between men and women? What are the, what, what are the, what are the internal, what are the innate differences between men and women? Um, uh, a man who was actually not a biblical exegete named George Carlin said one time about this. He said, men are stupid and women are crazy, and the main reason women are crazy is that men are stupid which I think is just senseless pandering to women, honestly. Um, Mythbusters did an episode on this, on common ideas about the differences between men and women, and what they found were, through their extremely scientific methods, is that men are, in fact, slightly better drivers than women, even though women speed more. Women tolerate, do tolerate pain better. Women are more empathic, meaning they are quicker and more accurate in their response to the emotions of others. Men actually do pack the car better, Thanks, right? You know, like, oh, now, now we're even. And then um, they said, neither are better at directions or grilling. So, and though that's on some level interesting, it's really not going to help us with the gender war, is it? No, that's going to help you with the gender war, right? Um, it just hurts you if you're a guy and you're protective of your grill. Um, but Christians do this too. Christ we do a lot of speculating on the innate differences between the genders. Some of it I think is good. I think we should talk about that. Um, and some people I, I think have some really helpful things to say. For example, the men's ministry this fall is going to do a curriculum called 33, which focuses on um, Christian masculinity. How, what does it mean to be a Christian man? And um, my understanding is it's a very good curriculum. I'm going to be in involved in part of it. And if you're a dude, I'd encourage you to think about it. But one of the things that um, we can get tied up in is when we start doing this, sometimes we jump to conclusions that the Bible doesn't necessarily warrant. For example, let's, let's say as a Christian you believe that there are a number of biblical passages that say there is an, a difference in, ro in roles between men and women in relationship to authority. For example, in the church with elders and in the home between husband's wife. Let's say you do believe that, okay? Just speculate with me for a minute. Does that necessarily mean that there is something innate in men that makes them wield authority better? 
You see, in one sense, that would be perfectly reasonable. If God was going to create one creator to have more authority than the other, it would make sense that they would, he might create that person with more innate ability to wield authority. But of course, it could just as well be the other way. It could just as well not be true, that there's no difference, because both, both genders wield authority, right? No matter what you have for hierarchy, there, every, you have two people, you're going to have a leader. All women are going to have authority in their lives, so why would you make men so that they could wield authority? But you, that's, you just jump into conclusions, and there's really nowhere in the Bible, as far as I can tell, um, you could argue about First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. But and that's arguable. But nowhere else in the Bible says anything about women actually being better, or men being better with authority, even if you believe that there are certain kinds of authority that are reserved for men. We jump to conclusions. Same thing about... And we can also use them as excuses. Like, if you believe that women are more nurturing than men, it's really easy as a duty to use as an excuse not to be nurturing at all. But our, my daughters need a certain kind of nurturing from me, even if it doesn't come naturally, right? Um, it's actually becoming a little bit more popular to speculate on this in culture. It was for a while. You couldn't say anything about the differences between the genders because it was a little too touchy. But now if you're a woman, you're allowed to talk about the differences between the genders so long as your conclusion is that women are better. For example, there's a TED Talk by a lady named Hannah Rosen who talks about the data on the new rise of women, in which she, she argues that um, the 200-year economic supremacy of men is over um, and that women are now um, more adapted and just better in the environment we actually live in. It's just basic natural selection. The environment we used to live in, men were better adapted to. The environment we live in now, women are better adapted to. For example, in the modern, in the, in the work world of yesterday, how many bricks you could pick up and put on something mattered. If, if you needed a ditch dug, a man, the average man could dig more ditch in a day than the average woman. But what advantage does a man have if both a man and woman are now working a backhoe in an air-conditioned little pod in a comfortable chair? A woman can dig just as much dish as a man, right? They're both using a backhoe. But in the, in the modern world, um, see, it used to be in, a, in efficiency-based economies of manufacturing, hierarchy worked. You tell people what to do, they do it, they go, that's it. So, and men seem to, and she, and she said men thrive in that. But he said now you've got mostly high-educated mutuality environments of creativity where you build teams of mutuality. And, blah, blah, blah. and she's like, and women, just, women are just better at that. Women are just fabulous. And they're just, they're just better than men. Such that, whether or not you think that's true, which of course I don't actually really think it's true, one of the, there, there are some facts related to that. For example, in India, um, they're finding that women, see, if you want a good job in certain places in India, acquiring English, language skills, the faster you can acquire English and the better you can acquire it, the better job you can get. What they're finding in many places in India is that women are acquiring English better and faster, period. They don't always need to get the right accent, if you've ever called for help, but they get the syntax right really well and they learn the vocabulary. For some reason, women seem to have a little bit better aptitude for that. And if you look in a and American employment numbers in new jobs for managers, medical doctors, and lawyers, more than half are now women. Um, in a real estate study of 2,000 communities in 1,997 communities where they were studying, studying building, what they found was a young women were making more than young men just straight across the board and almost and such that contractors were now thinking if I'm going to build a single family home or if I'm going to build a starter house I need to build it with a woman's taste in mind not a man's because it's no longer that the man goes and buys a starter house and then he gets married and she goes and then figures out how to nest the ugly thing he purchased now the woman's going to buy the house he's going to leave his mom's basement and they're going to, and she's going to put up with him <laughs> To the point where she said, there was one quote from a woman in one of the interview studies she did that, that said, men are the new ball and chain. 
She said it used to be 15 years ago she'd do these interviews and women would say, we're both going to work, we're both going to raise the kids. Now more women are saying, she said somewhere north of 70% of college women that she interviewed said that that probably I'm going to work and be the major income winner for the family and my husband is going to stay home if we have children. Otherwise, he'll do whatever men do. It's weird. It's, it's odd, it's, but it's very different world in which, so the, one of the quotes that they offered, she offered was this. Presently, Oh, sorry, that's not it. What the economy needs is a wholly different set of skills. You need intelligence. This is, I'm reading this a little bit ironically now because of the stereotyping, but, but just go with me on this. It's par- partly true, partly false. Um, you need intelligence. <laughs> you need an ability to sit and focus, to communicate openly and be able to listen to people and operate in the workplace that is much more fluid than it used to be. These things are things women do extremely well. Read much better than men. Um... Yet, for all the good industrialization and, um, and feminism has done in anti-establishment, whatever it has done good, and that, of course, we could have three hours of argument about that, um, one of the things it has not done is made the gender war any better. It has not done any better with that. The, the standoffishness between men and women has escalated dramatically as the condition economically and educationally of women in America has improved. Um, to the point where... Well, for example, in, uh, in pre-marriage counseling with, with couple, couples will come in their 20s madly in love, believing deeply in equality. And one of the things I, I say is, um, one of the things you need to talk about is how you're going to do gender roles in your marriage. Right? And I don't tell them what it should be. I don't say, you know, the woman has to rule or the man has to. I don't say, I just say, listen, you just need to decide on gender roles. And they always look at me like I'm from Mars or like I'm from 1957 or something. You know, like gender, what are you talking about? Aren't we beyond that? And I'm like, listen, I don't care what you pick for your gender roles. I'm just saying you need to pick them. And they're like, well, why? We're, if we're just equals, isn't it just going to work itself out? We're all going to pitch. And I was like, listen, you could do that if you want. You could do that. You could not pick gender roles. Just let it work itself out. But here's what's going to happen. I'll just tell you right now what's going to happen. You're going to have to make 52 million more decisions in your life because everything that has to be done now is, is a new decision somebody has to make. It's not just set by, by precedent or by decision. And, and what it's going to lead to is about 500% more fights. Now, if you want to just let it work itself out, you just go ahead. But I can just tell you, you can set your watch by the fact that if you don't just— you can, you can decide the woman's in charge. I don't care what you decide. You just need to decide something. You can always renegotiate your gender roles. But if you don't have them, you're just making decisions and decisions. And what happens is you, then you start making decisions by who's done more. That's how the decision then gets made, which just, you just start with that kind of calculus because nobody's doing the exact same thing. It's not like I lifted 40 bricks and you lifted 38. So you're all doing this, and guess what happens when you start comparing? You start self-justifying. So who hasn't done as much as you? Well, your spouse. And so who should do the thing in question? They should. And what, guess what that produces? Resentment, anxiety, fights, name-calling, counseling bills, bitterness. Thank you. This is participatory. So... Um, so what, you see, so one of the things that can be said about the, about feminist disestablishment industrialization is what, uh, one commentator in First Corinthians, Von Roberts, said, thank you for the book, um, he called it a movement leaving women exhausted and men confused. A few sentences later he wrote, presently there is no longer any consensus about what it means to be male or female. Men are confused. Young men often feel emasculated by political correctness, adopting a passive demeanor. Others adopt a a metrosexual, almost asexual identity, and others assert their masculinity in aggressive or boorish ways. So I think one of the important things from this passage that we need to take, and I'm going to argue why this is the thing we should take from the passage in just a minute, is that um, true spirituality, the gospel really lived out, 
um, will affirm real gender differences in equality and freedom, but it, will rege- but it will reject social division that can be created by freedom run amok and not applied the way the gospel would apply it. Uh, we can call, um, if we're people called to a unity of freedom and honor. You see, if you listened carefully to the language of this passage, it was not the language of law. The problem that he was facing in this, he was talking about in this passage was an issue of dishonor and disrespect. That was, that's the issue. It's an issue of honor and respect. And so what he's doing is he's talking about the relationship of freedom to honor and respect. And so what freedom can grant, the, the license or liberty freedom can grant, love can take away. The freedom you may have by law or by liberty, love is perfectly free to take from you. You have to, you can't do things you're free to do, and you have to do things you're free not to do. That's the way the gospel works. So, here's what I, this passage is basically arguing, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to think I'm crazy, but I want you to hang with me, okay? What this passage is arguing is that men and women both stand absolutely equal in their worth and in their expressions of worship, but they're told to do it in a way that honors each other and that expresses the theological purpose of gender. That gender, maleness and femaleness, has a theological purpose that procreation points to but is not And therefore, when we express ourselves in our genders, especially in worship, we have to affirm that theological truth, and therefore it has to be done in freedom and mutuality and equality, as well as a mutual honor and respect for each other. And now in this passage, it specifically refers to that being done by women. And the reason it does that is because women not doing it is the incidental that this passage is addressed to. The universal, though, applies to both genders equally. The incidental is, in this church, at this moment, there was an issue with the way women were interacting with worship in relationship to respecting and honoring their husbands. However, the exact same principle that Paul says, hey, you can't do that. You have this freedom, but you have to use it in a way that honors and respects your unitedness with your husband because your genders reflect the gospel and you destroy the gospel when you destroy that. That can, that, now, when we apply it to ourselves, that incidental doesn't matter. It's the principle that matters, and therefore the question is, husband, do you express your gender, and especially in worship in a way that honors and respects your wife, and wife, do you express your gender in worship and in life in a way that honors and respects your husband? Or generally, as a man or as a woman, the way you treat men or the way you treat women, does that express the meaning of gender in relationship to the gospel, and do you do it in a way that honors and respects the other? Does that make sense? So don't get caught up in the particularity of this passage because it it relates equally to both genders, even though the incidentals of this issue relate specifically to women. Does that make sense? Awesome. Let me give you just a little bit of background on head coverings in the ancient world because it'll confuse you because who the heck wants to wear a hat church besides people who like hats and can pull them off, which who I am not one of them. Um, in the ancient world, both in Greco-Roman culture and in Hebrew or Jewish culture, um, married women wore head coverings. It was virtually universal. Um, and, um, for example, Horace in 8 BC, a well-known ancient writer, says, quote, certain male attire 
poor hairstyles were deemed effeminate or overtly sexual. Appropriate head coverings were respectable for Roman women and served as the protection of their dignity and status as women not to be propositioned. And one female commentator in 1 Corinthians wrote about this. In, early Roman, in the early Roman imperial period, it was men rather than women on whom women's clothing most reflected. That's an interesting idea. It was men rather than women on whom the women's clothing most reflected. Now, you might think that's hopelessly boorish and, and um, misogynistic and so on, but, but here's a sociological truth that a lot of us have completely forgotten. And that is that... Um, what you wear and how you act always either honors or dishonors the people you are most connected to. The idea that what you do with your hair, jewelry, piercings, tattoos, clothing, has, communicates nothing that you don't want it to communicate and has no relationship to anybody you're connected to sociologically is a very selfish and naive fallacy. What you do with your hair, how you tattoo or pierce yourself, what you wear... Um, communicate something very directly to the people around you. They know exactly what it means. It's not mystifying at all, and you're not really being all that ironic. And so everything that we do communicates something, and really on some level you know it. And so the idea that um, it's crazy that the way these women dressed, Paul could say was fundamentally dishonoring towards their husbands. That's not crazy at all. And he's doing it within the cultural context. So let me put it to you this way. Let's say you're a dude and you've got a friend and he shows up at church. He has a wife and he has two kids, right? He just never wears his wedding ring. Just wear it. You're like, you know, Andy, why don't you wear a wedding ring? And he's like, well, you know, I play a lot of basketball. I don't like wearing rings. And I still like to wear it, you know? Um, and so I just don't. And, his, you know, his wife wears it. And, and um, what would you say to that guy? Would you go, yeah, you know, you're free in Christ not to wear a wedding ring. You know, it's just a, just a cultural tradition, right? That's all, that's all it is. It's just something we do. They don't do it in other places in the world. Who cares? It's culturally relative, right? Well, I'll tell you what I'd say if I was alone with that guy. I would say, you can do that, but it's dishonoring and humiliating to your wife. And I wouldn't recommend it. You should bear the sign of your covenant. And you should wear it in public, and you should let other, and other people should see it. It is a mark of her ownership of you and your ownership of her in the covenant of marriage. And you should not wear it. And I don't care if you don't like rings. I don't like rings. That's why I got the comfort fit double ribbed one. Right? I could care. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. But, but I wear it because it is the cultural symbol. And if I don't wear it within my culture, the very nature of the thing, and because of the angels, I ought to know I'm disrespecting my wife. In fact, I've had people, because when I play basketball, I take it off, and then I put it back on afterwards, and I've forgotten a few times, and I've had people be like, hey, where's your wedding ring? And I don't say, I don't have to wear that. I go, oh, yeah, you're right. And I go put it on, because they're right. And is it culturally relative? Yes. Is it a, an objective truth that I ought to wear it so I don't dishonor and humiliate my wife? Yes. Same thing, I mean, Think about, uh, think about how teenagers and parents, right? Like, uh, teen, now teenagers, their, their brains are programmed, right, to differentiate themselves from their, from their parents. That's like the phase they're going through. That's how their brain works. They're like, I'm a different person than you, right? And so they do all these antisocial stupid behaviors, and they, hopefully they'll repent of them when they're 19 to 24, okay? That's kind of how that works, and you can try to prepare them beforehand for how they'll do that. But then, but, and so they, so, the, the, so you tell your kid, look, if you do that, 
um, you are disrespecting and dishonoring our family. It's not that I'm trying to control your behavior, but you are connected to us, and you can't undo that. And how you wear your hair, how you dress, how you pierce or tattoo yourself, and all, that, all, that all can't not reflect on the people around you and honor or dishonor them. It's just a fact. And they go, well, that's not true. I'm my own person, right? But then what do they do when you pick them up from somewhere and, they start, and you talk to their friends? What do they do? Dad, you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me. Don't talk about Beyonce. You don't know anything. <laughs> right? Right. And are they right about that? Yes. They are right. You are embarrassing them because you're speaking ignorantly about popular culture and you should be doing that. But that's a great time for them to realize their own hypocrisy in thinking that what they do doesn't reflect on you. And some parents, they get mad enough where they say that, right? I don't, you may have had that conversation with your parents at some point where they're like, you're like, you're embarrassing me. And they go, well, you embarrass me. And that's the, you, you know, you don't want to say that in anger, but is that true? It's absolutely true. Absolutely. And the, the result isn't you go your way and they go theirs. The result is you do reflect on each other. So keep your mouth shut about popular culture and go ahead and ask your kid, you know, besides me existing, is there anything, you know, I, I can't not exist, but is there anything I can do that really does bother you that I really could not do? You know? And they might go, well, just stop trying to be cool. Be an adult around my friends and quit by trying to be cool like them, and that would be great. And they're right about that, right? And then they should not be an idiot. <laughs> right? And, and be as disrespectful as possible, or, 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 you know, dress kind of skanky, or be rude to their teachers at school, or th- th- all that stuff. Th- it does reflect on you. You're right when you tell them that. Because how we live, how you act and how you dress and how you tattoo and pierce yourself and how you wear your hair and all that stuff does communicate something and that communication does reflect on those you're most connected to, most profoundly if you're married to your husband and your wife. It would be profoundly disrespectful if my wife dressed to kill when she came to church. Yet disrespectful if we went on a date, she didn't. Right? Because on the date, she's supposed to be alluring, drawing my attention. And she doesn't care about that. That's disrespectful towards me. We're supposed to be in love. Same thing for me. I need to go take a shower and put my baseball cap away and, and you know, maybe smell nice. And, and that's part of, but if, but if I try to dress to be attractive when I came to church and try to look all cool and blah, 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 for all the ladies, that would be profoundly disrespectful, even though it would be unsuccessful. Right? Because it's, it's a sociological truth. Listen, you are a colony animal. Okay? We are interrelated. You can't get away from that. It is a fundamental fact of human existence and behavior. What you do does reflect on other people. And so therefore, if you live in a culture in which um, wearing a head covering for a woman means that you're not available, and you don't wear one because you're freeing Christ not to wear one, yeah, you might be free in Christ not to wear one, but you are profoundly disrespecting your husband and therefore disrespecting Jesus, the greater head. And similarly, there are lots of behaviors men can engage in and lots of other behaviors women can engage in to accomplish the same thing. Now, let me try to defend this idea that this passage is profoundly, profoundly indicates the Christian faith's absolute commitment to the equality of equality and um, freedom of women beyond anything the world has produced, including this culture that we're living in right now. Um, most people look at this passage and they think that this is not about um, um, 
hold on, let me get the right slide there. The rejection of social division among people's Jesus. They think it has everything to do with the subjugation of women. It doesn't. And let me tell you why. Um, first of all, you ought to know something is wrong with that view when for the first three centuries particularly, Christianity had to work and work and work to shake the reputation that it was a religion for women. For three generations, for at least 300 years, until, about, until the Constantinian Revolution, it became cool to be a Christian. Men got in because it was profitable. Um, more women and more slaves than anybody else came to Christianity. And of course, that's a great thing to make fun of Christianity about. Even modern secular people would be like, well, the first three centuries, all women and slaves. You know, to which I go, did you sleep through feminism? Like, do you really want to say that? You know, like, but the idea is, well, well, everybody knows women are stupid and not educated, and so of course they believe in that hocus-pocus Christianity. No. The reason women flocked to Christianity was because Christianity reinstated the full honor and equality of women. That's why they flocked to Christianity. Christianity's ruling on divorce, that you could not get a divorce, period. Now, people think that's so anti-woman now, but I'll tell you what, if you were a woman completely disempowered in the legal system, the, ma the man owned everything and he could divorce you whenever he wanted you, or a Jesus who comes along and goes, you can't do that. Men don't have that freedom. That sounds good. That's good. You're like, you wouldn't be like, Right? Um, for example, uh, um, you know, there was no birth control in the ancient world, and so there were a lot of very unhealthy and um, degrading sexual practices practiced in the ancient world to women that caused health problems, that they hated, but that was very normal in Greco-Roman culture. And the church took a stand against it. They said, you're not allowed to do that because it's degrading and it's not God's purpose for sexuality. Now, we all like to make fun of the Catholic Church about, oh, everything has to be procreative, but that was based in a rejection of of a not-so-fun practice in the Greco-Roman world that women hated. And the church came out, led by men, and said, you can't use it that way. Women should be free from that degradation and that, that health-destroying practice. Same thing with abortion and infanticide. Thousands and thousands of babies born in the ancient world, especially girls, because very few Greco-Roman families wanted to raise more than one girl because it was an expense with no profit. And so men expected the second girl on through to just be exposed. It was very common. There are extant letters written from men to women um, that we have that say to his pregnant wife, he writes home, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it away. Women hated that. We think of abortion now as this thing like, oh, it's for women, and women like it, and women can make their choices. Women hated that in the ancient world. They hated that men dominated the fact that they could not keep the, the fruit of their own womb, the child that they nurtured and grew and was for them to care for, love, and protect. Their husbands were like, look, it's not, it doesn't work for us money-wise. Let's get rid of it. They hated that. And the church said, you can't do that. You can't take abortion potions, and you can't expose children. Children are a gift from God. You have to keep them. Women loved that. And they still should. And men should. There were all these things in the Christian church. It wasn't women are stupid. It was that Christianity reinstated full womanhood and humanity the way it was supposed to be because of Christ. And women flocked to that because they saw it because in those areas they had been oppressed. And when they were set free, they recognized the chains coming off and they went for it. So when somebody says, oh, look at that passage on head coverings. They're Christian so misogynistic. You ought to smell something foul right away. But one of the reasons why we get confused about this is because um, we do what people who really annoy us do. We come to this passage after a conversation has been going on for two hours. We hear one thing and we think we can interject into the conversation. 
You see, what most people think is happening when they read this passage is that Greco-Roman culture was really free and liberating for women. They were priestesses, and, you know, women had this equal place, and they didn't have to wear head coverings. And now Paul comes along, and he wants to make all all these Greek women as misogynistically subjugated as Jewish women, and it's a cultural conflict, and that's what's going on. That's not what's going on. It's not what's going on. You're too late in the conversation. Think about it this way. Let's say um, you're parenting a 17-year-old, right? They're going to go to college in a couple of years. You've got to open wide the parenting tent. You've got to teach them to behave like an adult. And to do that, you've got to give them a little freedom. And so you take Chuck, your son, aside, and you go, listen, Chuck, you're, gonna, you're 17. I'm going to kick you out of here in a couple of years. And so um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise your allowance that I give you, but I'm going to get a little bit, but I'm going to give it all to you on the first of the month so that you have to manage your own money. I'm going to give you the key to the car. You don't have to ask me if you have the right to use that car for whatever you need to use it for, but you're responsible for it. You don't have a curfew. You come home when you think you should come home. You know, and you're going to make a lot of your own. A lot of decisions your mom and I have been still making for you, you're going to make yourself. You need to, I, I need to, to, to give you the freedom to act like an adult. And so here it is, right? So two months go by. Chuck has a couple speeding tickets. He spends all his money the first week of the month, and he's going to bed at 2 a.m. on school nights, right? Now, What's that dad supposed to do? What's good fathering? Right? You got to have a talk with him, right? You have to say, listen, Chuck, let me state that sentence for you again. I need to give you the freedom to be an adult. Okay? So, yes, you have the freedom, but the freedom exists so that you can have the honor and respect and responsibility of being an adult. And so, when you go to bed at two on a school night, you're disrespecting your teachers, you're disrespecting your fellow students, you're disrespecting yourself, you're disrespecting 17 years of investment I've put in you so that you could get an education, so you could be an independent adult, you're disrespecting and dishonoring all of that, and you need to use your freedom to be a grown-up. Now, if you walked into that conversation and judging other people's parenting was one of your pastimes, you might say, Oh, look at that dad. He says he's going to give his kid freedom, but then he just comes right back into his other hand and takes it. He's so domineering, right? It's because you came to the conversation too late. It's not like this is the first conversation. It's not the first conversation. And this isn't the first conversation Paul is having with these folks about gender roles. You see, the, you see it was Paul who taught the equality that's now going haywire, not the Greeks. Paul shows up. Paul was the one in Galatians who said that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, man nor woman, but all are one in Christ. I mean, he was the one that that destroyed the social distinctions and said, listen, in Christ, we all belong to Christ. We're all equal. We're all free to worship. We're all free to—I mean, we're free, right? He taught them that. And so therefore, he spoke into this culture, and he taught them that women can pray and prophesy. That, that, that it, like, for example, if you're in small group, and you're talking about what, what do you think a passage means, anybody talks. Whatever God brings to mind, you share it. If you're a woman, you share it. If you're a man, you share it. Or if you're praying, just, men don't just pray. Everybody prays. Women pray. Men pray. Everybody, it's just, it's, you're seeking, there's equality, right? And, and listen, the Greeks didn't teach them that. Paul taught them that. And so now when he comes back here and he begins to adjust the way they use their freedom in ways that don't dishonor and disrespect each other, he's doing it within the premise he set in place, which was a radical equality among people. The the problem here is not that Paul wants to take away the freedom that already existed in their culture. He gave them the freedom when he gave them Jesus, and now he needs to show them how to use that freedom with honor and respect. And everything in this passage assumes and presumes that. Such that even just the first verse ought to tell us something. 
when he says in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. Do you see what he's saying? I'm really glad that there's something that you're doing that is profoundly right, i.e. the equality and mutuality in worship that men and women are both participating equally. They're both involved. It's, it's go, that's, that's great. And that's the, that's the tradition of the church. And, and, and that, you should do that. And that's great that you're doing it. Okay, now, let me help you do it with the dictates, not just of freedom, but the dictates of love. Let me help you realize how to do it in a way that honors and respects each other by living out the theological meaning of gender in a way that expresses the gospel to the whole world. And you can track this all the way through the passage from the first couple verses um, down through. So verses 2 and 16 say what I just said. Verses 4 to 6 um, talk about the social issue without rejecting the freedom. So it says, listen, this is dishonoring towards each other, but he never says, therefore, stop doing it. He says, so when you do this, when you act with full freedom and equality, do it this way. You see what he's saying? It presumes an argument for freedom within it. Even the fallacy that is cleaned up in verses um, 10 and 11, I mean, think about, what, think about how he says that. And think about it in, um, like we should philosophically. So in verse 11, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything from, comes from God. Now, see, the point there is non-independence, right? The point is you have freedom, but not independence. Now think about that. What's he doing? Philosophically, he's arguing for a fallacy that they've bought into a philosophical fallacy, right? Now, what's a fallacy? I wish I had a whiteboard right now. What's a fallacy? Right? A fallacy is when the premises are true, but the logic is wrong. Okay? So if I say, in Christ, I'm free. I'm free. Therefore, I can watch TV as long as I like every day. Right? Now, is the first premise true? In Christ, I am free. Yes, right? Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Does it follow that therefore I can watch TV as much as I like? No. That's a logical fallacy. The premise is true, but the conclusion is false because the logic is bad. Right? Now, if he says, look, 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 you're not independent of each other. What's he saying? He's saying, here's the logical fallacy. You think because you're free and equal, therefore you're independent, and what you do doesn't reflect on each other. Now, think about that. He's saying it's a fallacy because the first premise is true. The first premise being, you are free and equal. It's the logic that's wrong. If I'm free, then I'm independent. That's false. Because woman came from man, and men come from women. You're interdependent. You're dependent on each other. You're not independent from each other. You are free, but love dictates an interdependence that you have to give yourself to. Therefore, your freedom has to be expressed with honor and respect. Right? You see, even when he's arguing against illicit freedom, he's arguing for freedom and equality and mutuality. And that's really important to understand in this passage. If you just read it with modernist bigotry about the Bible and a secular ideology in relationship to, oh, this can't be right. It was written a long time ago. Then you're going to get, oh, women are being subjugated. Isn't he a misogynist? You're going to get that? Fine. Just put your prejudice in your purse and you can carry it out with you. But, or wallet. Um, but if you want to know what this passage says, you try to find some logical fault with how I've reasoned. And 
come argue with me because you're, you're not going to find one. Now, it's important also to recognize, though, that he says more than this, because he does also say, secondly, that the gospel retains and affirms gender distinction and mutuality. That he, 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 he doesn't just lay it as a free-for-all. He says, your freedom has certain responsibilities that go along with it that are related to mutual respect and honor that are objective because of their theological meaning. Your gender has a theological meaning, and therefore, you can't get away from that. However, it is always going to be expressed through culturally relative mechanisms. Those might change. So in a culture in which if you don't wear a head covering as a wife, you're demonstrating an independence from your husband in a way that disrespects and dishonors him, then it is objectively true in that relative context that if you don't wear the head covering, you dishonor your husband. But in a context in which that's not the case with head coverings, you don't have to wear a hat. You see, when he says, doesn't the very nature of the thing tell you something about that? You say, okay, wait, so Paul apparently thinks <laughs> that there's something embedded in our nature that if a woman doesn't have long hair and doesn't have like a beanie on top of it, that we all should like genetically explode. But that's not what he's saying. He's, he, what he's saying is, given the culture you're situated in, the objective meaning of those things doesn't the very nature of marriage and, and what wearing a head covering does and doesn't mean to you demonstrate there's something fundamentally wrong in relationship to gender when a wife intentionally dishonors her husband by demonstrating she's independent from him and they don't have a union of covenant where they each belong to each other? Isn't there something fundamentally wrong with that? And I would argue, absolutely. And if you want to throw in because of the angels, go ahead. So what that means then is, if we want to understand this passage, there is one part of this passage that is truly offensive. It says exactly what it looks like it says, and it means exactly that. Because it, dem it demonstrates the importance that we cannot fully live out the gospel or even fully believe the gospel without embracing the theological meaning of gender. Maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity, has a theological meaning. You can live it out in widely variable ways. But it has a meaning, and however you decide to live it out in gender roles, either generally men and women, or specifically husbands and wives, it needs to be reasoned out in relationship to the theological meaning of what you are. If you don't do that, you are not living out and shining out the gospel, and you're not living out your created purpose. Sorry if that's a little strong, but that's exactly what the verse says. So this is one of the most offensive verses, but not for the reason most people think it is, okay? So a man ought to ha not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now what most people, they'll look at that and they'll say this. Look, it says right here that the man is the image and glory of God, and then it doesn't repeat image for the woman. So it sounds there like Paul is saying that men are in the image of God, but women aren't. Now that's not what it's saying, but that's what it can look like it's saying. And then it says this. It says, it says that, that the woman is the glory of man. Most people read that their man. That's what they really think. And so they say what this is saying is that the man reflects God somehow, but the woman is supposed to reflect her husband. And they, people get a little touchy about that. And I can understand that. But here's, here's a couple things we need to recognize. The first is, is that the word that is not repeated from this phrase about men to this phrase about women is this word image. And the reason for that is that, see how there's a but here? 
And there's a but there, and there's a but there, not anatomical, linguistic, right? Now, in Greek, there's two buts, okay? There's day and there's Allah, um, A-L-L-A. But is a conjunctive but. So you can translate it and, or you can translate it but. It kind of links two, two phrases together. And it's not meant to say this or that. Allah, A-L-L-A, is, is more like, it's not this, it's that. It's not, it's, it's, just, it's to create contrasts and distinctions. Now, this but here is day. This one and this one are Allah. Meaning, this is not meant to be disjunctive. The man and the woman are in the image of glory of God. The distinction is that the woman's reflection of glory is the reflection of humanity. That is, the role of the female gender is to reflect, as the two genders are meant to reflect, redemption. Somebody stands in the place of—the two big players in the, hist- in the cosmic history of redemption are God and humanity. Okay? Those are the two roles. Okay? So there's casting— Somebody's got to get cast in each one, okay? What this passage is saying is males got cast in the role of Christ. And women got cast in the role of humanity. And femininity, in some sense, its purpose, maybe not its nature. I'm not arguing that women are a certain way because of this. I'm just saying this is their role in the play. Their role in the story is to, is to mirror and shine out what God has done for humanity. And what the, what the meaning of male gender is theologically is to shine out in redemption and creation what God is doing through Christ. And there is meant to be a mutuality between them, and that is best shined out through marriage. If you think about what glory means, it is something, something good, beautiful, honorable, praiseworthy about God— that is displayed. That's what glory means. It means the display of some great thing about God. And so, both men and women are in the image of God. The Bible could hardly be clearer about that. But what it's saying is, is that the two genders actually reflect different glories in relationship to redemption. Men reflect the role of Christ, and women reflect the role of humanity, and there is no gospel without both. You can get as, as frustrated as you want with God for that, but, but without the role of humanity being mirrored to society in redemption through creative femininity, you can't get the gospel out of a marriage or out of the genders. Um, for example, one of the things that, that people, I think, struggle with is why are there two creation stories in the Bible? Right? Genesis 1 is pretty good. God creates stuff. At the end, he creates men and women in his image. And it says explicitly, in God's image, he created them, male and woman. Like it explicitly, clearly states, both men and women made in God's image, right? And so you're like, there it is, right? Why do we need Genesis 2? It just complicates things. And then you turn the page and there's Genesis 2. And people go, oh, it's their conflicting stories. Well, no, they have different purposes. They're both true. But they have different purposes. The purposes of one is to demonstrate that 
Men and women were the crowning creation of God's overall creation. They both bear his image, and they share together a role over all of creation. Genesis 2 answers the question, but what's their role to each other? What's their relationship to each other? We see what their relationship to all of creation is in Genesis 1, but the relationship to each other comes from that story where it says that God made man out of dirt, but he made woman out of a part of the man so that there was an inescapable mutuality so that the first thing that occurred to Adam was... She came from me. We're from the very same thing. We belong to each other. We're made for each other. It was the first thing that occurred to him, so he names her Eve. And the idea was, that was supposed to occur to all of us. And that intuition is the basis for what marriage even is and how human societies are built. It's for that reason, it says, that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it said of the first two that when they understood that, they were together, they were both naked, and they were totally unashamed. There was peace and mutuality and harmony between them. There was no war of the genders in Genesis 2. There was no war of the genders. And unless you think I'm just totally making this up, in Ephesians 5, where Paul isn't talking about gender roles, he's talking about marriage, he brings the same thing up again, doesn't he? He's talking about marriage, and he says, so here's, here's how marriage kind of works, and here's what people do, and so on. Where's that little dot? And he, he, says, he says, here's what husbands are supposed to be like. They're supposed to act like Christ and try to present to themselves a radiant bride. And, all. and then he gets to the bottom, and he says, this is a profound mystery, right? Husbands and wives, no. But I am talking about Christ in the church. And he says, again here, this is not controversial. Oh, this, wait, this is in the Bible. This is in my notes that I didn't cut out. So the Bible stops there. Um, but that's an important distinction. Um, so what he's saying is he's talking about marriage, and he's talking about the gender's relationship to each other and all that, and he gets in and he goes, but this isn't even really about marriage. It's about what marriage means. But what was he talking about marriage? He was talking about the mutuality of the two genders within marriage, that the genders have a theological meaning to each other within the context of marriage, and that reflects the theological meaning of gender. Now, that doesn't say anything about about the nature of women and the nature of men. It doesn't say men wield authority better. It doesn't say women are more nurturing or more responsive. It doesn't say any of that. All that might be true, and we can fight about reasoning from that what might be true about the genders. But what it says is that the genders have a theological purpose and meaning. And that theological purpose and meaning is wrapped up in the great story of all of creation. The relationship between God and everything he's created, especially humanity. So that when you get, when you get on to the saddest part of the story, this is the fall, right? They've eaten the fruit, they've turned away from God. And there's this passage that really bothers a lot of women, which I can understand. Um, but it says this, to the woman he said, and this is God's curse Toward the woman. He says, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing, and with pain you will bear and give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Meaning, you're just going to be a nice little skirt-wearing 50s mom, and he's going to be happy to just tell you what to do, is how most people read that. But just in the next chapter, in Genesis 4, the same word group is used, desire and rule over. And it's when Cain is... Um, he, he's not offering a good, a good offering. He's giving him the leftovers. Abel's giving him the good stuff. And God is talking to him. He says, he says to Cain, he says, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. 
Okay, so it's now that it's between sin and Cain. It desires to have you. That's one word in Hebrew. Desires to have you is one word. It desires you. But you must master it. You must rule over it. You see the idea? That there is an inherent conflict. One is trying to catch. The other is trying to, to push back. And so the, sad, the sadness of this passage, and lot, there's a lot of biblical scholars, there's some controversy about what this verb means particularly. But what this shows is, is that what happened in the fall, one of the greatest tragedies was a, the division of the one thing that was supposed to be mutually connected in God's creation. The one thing that mirrored the unity between God and his creation, the genders, was divided. And why was it divided? Because the thing it represented was divided. The war, the passive-aggressive war between the genders, the reason we do not experience the full joy of mutuality, we don't have the full joy of complete freedom in Christ, is because what we experience between each other is what the creation experiences in its separation from God. Because we were always ever supposed to mirror that. And when creation and God broke, how could man and woman not break? But when God comes in Christ to bring creation back to himself, how can that message by the people who believe it not bring men back together with women and women with men? How can the gospel not redeem the roles of gender because the roles of gender will come back to the place of reflecting the relationship of God with his redeemed creation? what creation was meant to be, and what redemption will ultimately accomplish. And therefore, the first step in accepting our, our theological meaning as men and women, the first step in getting back together with wives and husbands, the first step in the genders enjoying each other like they were meant to, the first step in that is not embracing your gender. The first step in that is accepting Jesus. The first step in that is believing the gospel, believing that Christ died for your sins, separated from God to bring you back to himself in a relationship of freedom and mutuality, where there was total freedom, but there was mutual respect and honor. And what, what, what freedom allowed, love enjoyed within, within this relationship of the two that love and enjoy each other and were created for each other. And when that happens spiritually, when you begin to know Christ in that way, you will be able to be masculine and you will be able to be feminine in a way that unleashes that to the world. And when people look at you, they will see you as someone who demonstrates how humanity was meant to respond to God or how God has come to love humanity, whether you're married or not. And it will transform and it will undermine the passive-aggressive, seething, love-killing and community-destroying war between the genders that can only die one way, through the gospel, through a people who will live out in their gender what Jesus accomplished on the cross for the redemption of the way things were created to be from the beginning and will be forever. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you take whatever I said that was helpful and press it in on our minds and help us to remember it and help us to work through how we understand who we are in you and what it means to belong to you and therefore then what it means to be each other's and so that, as, that husbands can see in the behavior of their wives 
how they should be responding to Christ. And women can see in the behavior of their husbands um, in a concrete way how Christ feels about him and how, how he wants to love them and draw them to himself. And that, that, that it would be enjoyed between men and women. It would be enjoyed by all who observe. And that we would not be emotionally intimidated by issues of gender but that we would have the freedom of our gender and also a strong desire and draw towards the other. God, we pray that you'd help us to to believe rightly on this and to live it out well and to model it for Christ's glory and for the good of all people. In Jesus' name.